Hello, and welcome to the Thames and Hudson podcast. In this episode of the Thames and Hudson podcast, we're exploring abstract art and asking if the standard approach and understanding of abstraction is really fit for purpose. Is abstract art the pure phenomenon of colour and form, as traditional histories would suggest? Is it only a succession of formal innovations, or might abstraction actually have a much closer relation to real-world experience? My name is Eliza Rappoli, and I'm joined today in our remote COVID-compliant studio by Pepe Carmel, Associate Professor of Art History at NYU and author of Abstract Art, A Global History, published by Thames and Hudson, and Kyla MacDonald, art historian and curator, specialized in the reappraisal of women artists. So Pepe and Kyla, welcome. It's wonderful to see you on our digital gathering. I'd love to begin by asking you, Pepe, how your book differs from previous books on abstract art. Well, in the book, I argue that abstraction is rooted in real-world, personal, social, and political experience. There's just nothing pure about it. And tell us a bit more, what's the standard narrative of abstraction? How, how does your book stand apart from those more traditional histories of what abstract art is? Well, the standard narrative, which is usually called Greenbergian formalism, is that the history of abstraction consists of a series, a, a linear series of formal innovations unfolding in splendid isolation, unrelated to the real world. I can discern a certain skepticism in your voice. So what, what's wrong with that approach, or at least obsolete? There are two things wrong with it. First of all, it's just not how the actual history happened. You know, if you go back to the beginnings of abstraction, let's call it 1910 to 1925, there's Kandinsky with gestural abstraction at exactly the same time. There's Pete Mondrian and Kazimir Malevich uh, inventing geometric abstraction, and at exactly the same time, there's Hilma F. Clint inventing symbolic abstraction. So there's no linear progression because there's not even a single starting point. Then, if we go to a second phase, let's call it 1925 to 1940, geometric abstraction just kind of runs out of steam after 1930, and it gets replaced by a new surrealist kind of abstraction with a lot of blobs. Okay, where's the linear development in that? Then, you know, abstraction takes a time out for World War II, as does most normal things. And then, do you get a linear development from what came before? No, you get two totally different tracks. There's a, a new abstract expressionism, the one we usually talk about in New York, and in certain neighborhoods, certain quartiers of Paris. Meanwhile, there's a new geometric abstraction in other quartiers of Paris. In other words, there's, there's just no evolution. There's a bunch of crazy, wonderful episodes. Now, the second problem is that the story that I've just been summarizing, it's all about white male geniuses. There's no space in this story for women or artists of color, or artists who don't live in Europe or North America. So 
basically the goal of my book is to tell the story of abstraction in a way where all these other great artists can be included instead of being ignored. And Kyla, tell us a little bit more about those women artists that have been excluded from the standard account of abstraction. As Pepe mentioned, there hasn't been much room or any room for women artists. I mean, that's not exclusive to abstraction, that's art history more generally. Because of discrimination and inherent bias, I mean, women have always made art and been the co-creators of these histories, but they've just been perpetually overlooked. So there's so many reasons for this, such as lack of access to the same training and education, having little opportunity or no opportunity to show their work, or being dismissed by curators in favour of their male counterparts. For example, Lee Krasner was an excellent abstract expressionist painter who was very much part of that movement and those critical discourses at that time, and yet she was completely overshadowed by her husband, Jackson Pollock, and therefore ignored for many, many years. And another example would be Annie Albers, who even though she, you know, she attended the progressive Bauhaus school, she was relegated to the weaving workshop because that was appropriate for women. So these issues have been discussed since the 1970s by feminist art historians such as Linda Nochlin and Griselda Pollock, who note that women have been excluded because of structural systems put in place to purposefully place men at the top and women as other. And I guess one of the structural systems would be the abstract progressive narrative set up by Greenberg, but also the founding director of the Museum of Modern Art in New York, Alfred J. Barr, who created his own kind of unidirectional advance of modern art, which proceeded from movement to movement and created this idea of the male genius. So that patrilineal narrative of where one male genius passes on to the next and on to the next. So women who don't easily fit into that kind of chronology are therefore ignored. So the perfect example is Hilma of Klint because she was making her abstract paintings at exactly the same time as these pioneers, but she wasn't part of the networks that are revered and talked about by Greenberg and Barr. Another problem is that the formalist scheme negates real-world experience and also feminine experiences, so domestic handicraft or domestic traditions, making work in the home. So feminist art historian Patricia Maynardy argued that the female craft tradition of quilting and weaving um, was consistently devalued, made subordinate and othered, um, creating a kind of gendered hierarchy which downplayed how innovative those works actually were. I'd love to dig a little bit deeper on Afklin because she's come up already a couple of times and features on the cover of Pepe's book, but certainly that kind of recognition has has really been a long time coming. Can you tell us a little bit more about her belated recognition? It really has been a long battle, as you say. So she's been discovered, then ignored, then rediscovered um, so many times over. So she first appears in the art world, you know, several years after her death in 1944, but she appears in this exhibition at LACMA in Los Angeles in 1986, which was kind of focused on the spiritual aspects of abstract painting. And I think that basically her perpetual exclusion is precisely because she disrupts and exposes the kind of flaws set up by the formalist chronology. 
There's also the added factor with Earth Clint that she is involved in spiritualist practices, which get dismissed because the paintings are seen as not being pure abstraction, or worse, that she's actually not an artist. But um, Hilma Earth Clint is now hanging in the collection galleries at the Museum of Modern Art, which is an amazing feat and a real long journey to get there. Um, I would argue that there are still a couple of issues around where and how she's been placed there, as it kind of seems to negate the actual timeline of discovery and discussion. And I think we do need to think a little bit more about how we historicise differently, but it's definitely a step in the right direction. And I think that's one of the reasons why Pepe's book is so exciting to me, because I think I think it is the, one of the first times that Ofklin is discussed in a publication on the history of abstraction more widely, other than exhibition catalogues. And his account is allowing for these voices to finally be seen and discussed in this wider context. And that stands for Annie Albers, Lee Krasner, Nazri Mohammadi, Farhanisa Saeed, and so many other women, but also other previously marginalised positions. Can I add a kind of uh, footnote here, which is there's something about the zeitgeist that plays a role in this. As, as you mentioned, Kyla, Af Clint was shown in L.A. in the 80s. She had a small retrospective at the New Museum in New York, I don't know, five, seven years ago, and none of them kind of clicked. And then when the Guggenheim show went up, it was a sensation, and I, you know, my sister, cousins of mine who are lawyers, people who really are not deeply engaged with the art world, were suddenly calling me up and saying, I saw this amazing show at the Guggenheim. It was the right moment. So, Pepe, in opening up abstraction to many more positions and practitioners, as Kyla mentioned, you've opted for a new thematic approach, dividing your book into five categories abstract bodies, landscapes, cosmologies, architectures, and signs and patterns. So how did you decide on this thematic approach? Well, for one thing, I was influenced by the hanging at Tate Modern, uh, going back to the opening of Tate Modern, which is thematic and has got to be one of the great innovations in contemporary museum practice. Uh, you can see its influence in the new hanging at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Kyla, you've worked at the Tate. Tell us a little bit more about that thematic curatorial approach. What, what's that opened up in the understanding of modern art, and particularly in terms of abstraction? Yes, they've used that thematic approach since they opened in 2000 and they've continued to use it. And it was definitely a move away from that chronological narrative or, I guess, an attempt to challenge Barr's schematic of groups and movements of art and, you know, the formalist approach. And I think it allowed for an integration of a wider range of voices, but also different types of practice and media, integrating installation art, performance, things that don't usually appear in collection galleries. And it was also the time when they were beginning to pursue a more global acquisition strategy. And this meant that actually the thematic displays allowed them to integrate work from Latin America, the Middle East, South Asia, and so forth, as well as work by women, much more readily than the narrative of Western modernism has previously allowed. And that's really exciting. Absolutely. So that, that curation via themes really expanding understanding of abstraction in terms of voices, in terms of practice, 
and as you say, a much more global, inclusive perspective. I'm curious to ask you, Pepe, how in embracing this thematic approach inspired by the Tate, you landed on these five categories in particular. I mean, there must have been so many thematic possibilities to choose from. Well, there was a whole lot of floundering around. Over a period of years, I, I must have made, you know, 10,000 scans of uh, abstract paintings and sculptures. I mean, I, some I made myself, I had my staff make them, and I was just sitting there, you know, kind of drowning in a sea of JPEGs, thinking what, you know, this looks like that, you know, what's going on here, just, you know, inductively looking for relationships. And what I ended up with was these five categories, which after the fact, it seems to me, have a, a certain logic, a certain coherence. First, you know, we exist in bodies. Being embodied is a fundamental fact about human existence. Second, we walk through landscapes. I mean, you know, this is how we experience the world, maybe not in cities, but, you know, for most of human existence, we've you know, walked on the surface of the earth, and that becomes something fundamental in the way we see things. Similarly, we, we look up at the sky. I mean, human beings have been doing that for however many years there have been human beings. And there's a great urge to find meaning in the sun and the moon and the stars and the patterns of the stars. I think in a way, the constellations are the first abstract art. You know, you look up there, it's actually kind of a random bunch of stars, but people find meaning in it. Then shifting to man-made things, we inhabit buildings. I mean, that's part of what it means to be human once you get civilization. So buildings are a fundamental part of our experience. And finally, there are a bunch of other man-made artifacts. So fabrics, which as Kyla mentioned, an area where women have been tremendously creative and that contribution has been often overlooked. Writing of various kinds, maps, and other man-made things. And I, I think these become archetypes for our experience. I indeed, I've come to feel that there's a kind of visual unconscious that has been shaped by all these experiences which means that when an artist starts out to make a painting or a sculpture or an installation or a video, whatever it is, they, they start with this stock of pictorial archetypes that are somewhere at the back of their heads, maybe not conscious, but you know, somewhere back there. And these archetypes kick in and have an effect even if the artist is making what they think of as abstract work. It's a fascinating idea, this, this working of a, of a visual unconscious, and particularly the possibility of that coming through in abstract practice. But I'd love to probe that suggestion a little further, if I may, because if these abstract images do indeed rely on, as you describe it, a stock of pictorial archetypes, does that not make the abstract art, in fact, ultimately representational? You, you kind of caught me on that one, didn't you? <laughs> uh, well, okay, seriously. So what is the, if I can rephrase that, you know, what is the difference, so to speak, between figurative representation and abstract representation? And I think the difference is the greater freedom of abstraction and to me, this suggests a kind of rewrite on the history of modern art to say that it's really about freedom, that you start with the Impressionists and the Cubists and they get rid of the fixed point of view, the academic way of drawing and so forth. 
And then abstract painters and sculptors get rid of fixed reference. They create things that are intentionally open-ended and ambiguous. So, you know, it's, it's an old cliche that a Mark Rothko looks like a sunset or like light, sky, and earth. Okay, yeah, clearly. But it, it, it doesn't represent a particular cloud bank like a painting by John Constable or a particular sunset like a painting like Frederick Church. I'd love to jump in at this point and look at a few specific case studies, a few specific works and artists that are featured in Pepe's book, but that have been overlooked in conventional histories of abstraction. So Pepe, maybe you could give us two or three examples of, of artists that you feel have been unfairly sidelined. Okay, so one of my favorite examples from the book of an artist who you know ought to be better known is Chakaya Booker, who's an African-American artist, and she creates all over reliefs that sort of recall Jackson Pollock, except that they're not painted with enamel paint. They're made from shredded automobile tires, which have the texture of human skin. Now, this, this relates to other figurative art that's made after 1980. There's a, there's a very widespread fascination with skin and bodily organs, and indeed, that's a chapter of the book. Uh, but also, the Booker's use of black rubber from tires, I mean, it comes that color, but still, the fact that she uses that makes the work also inevitably about race and about her experience as a black woman in America. Another of my favorite artists in the book is Zarina, the, the late great South Asian artist. And indeed, we put her on the frontispiece of the book. I mean, you know, we're trying to say this is, this is not your grandfather's history of abstraction. So we put Hilma F. Clint on the front, Zarina on the frontispiece, and Wosane Kosroff, an uh, Ethiopian artist, on the back. Um, don't worry, Jackson Pollock is in there somewhere. But in any case, coming back to Zarina, the, her woodcut, which is the frontispiece, shows a black line just kind of meandering across the page surrounded by violent hatch marks. So you might think, okay, it's an abstract composition until you read the title. And then it says dividing line. And you realize it's the border between Pakistan and India, haunted by the threat of war. So here we have this abstract form that is full of a, a, a complex and tragic historical meaning. Kyla, what are some of the works in Pepe's book that really spoke to you? I was really pleased to see someone like Rosie Lee Tompkins in the book, who is an artist whose work belongs to the history of improvisational quilt making, um, heavily influenced by African tradition of textiles. So if you take the example that Pepe uses in the book three sixes. It's this really vibrantly coloured quilt that's completely irregular in shape and made from unconventional materials. And she's taken these sort of differently sized rectangles and placed them all over the quilt, but they're in oranges, yellows, purples and blacks. And it creates this kind of rich textured surface that gives an illusory sense of motion. But I think why I'm excited, as I talked about earlier, but as quilting and other types of fabric work have consistently struggled to be valued in the same way, and especially those by an artist such as Tompkins, who trained outside of formal art education and is African-American. Those types of works have so often been delegated as decorative, or in her particular case, as American folk art, which demonstrates both gender 
and racial bias. Um, so the inclusion in the book means that these works are finally having value and these types of practices do have value within the history of abstraction. Pepe, your book obviously is a really bold and vibrant reappraisal of abstraction and you also talk about the ways in which abstract art is continuously reinventing itself for the postmodern era. What about digitization? Are there some works that you see responding specifically to digital culture? Well, yes. Uh, the book includes a kinetic installation by a Venezuelan artist named Magdalena Fernandez, who really brilliantly uses digital technology to set Mondrian in motion. And it, she fills up a room, and you walk in, and it's jet black. And then little dots of light appear, and then they start stretching out into horizontal lines and vertical lines that make plus and minus signs, like those in Mondrian's paintings of 1914-15. And then it gradually gets more and more complex and fills up the walls, and then it deconstructs itself and goes back to blackness. It's, it's just a, a brilliant installation. I, I, I saw it firsthand in Houston some years back. I would have liked to have included uh, one of Tatsuo Miyajima's sculptures. He's a Japanese artist who works with streams of numbers running through LED panels, but you know, we just ran out of space. I mean, there's something like 250 pictures in the book. That's not nearly enough, but it's as many. The book is already so heavy that it's hard to pick it up physically. However, it seems to me that much of the art responding to the internet is in fact quasi-figurative. It wouldn't fit under the rubric of abstraction, even though I've made that rubric broader. So I'm uh, thinking of things like Laura Owen's montage paintings, which explicitly incorporate like images from websites. Uh, maybe I can get that stuff in the next book. Well, that was certainly something to look forward to. But in the meantime, thank you, Pepe, and, and thank you so much, Kyla, for this really fantastic conversation. You've both opened up, indeed, so much breadth and depth to abstract art, both in terms of its many forgotten and overlooked practitioners around the globe, but also so much of that social and personal and political experience in which those works are rooted. So thank you both so much for joining today. Thank you, Eliza, and thanks to Pepe too. Thank you, Eliza. Thank you, Kyla. It's really been a pleasure talking with the two of you. You've been listening to the Thames and Hudson podcast. 